Good morning, church. It's really good to see you all here this morning. And you can tell we are a country church because no amount of snow or icy roads can keep us away from Christian fellowship. Amen. We are not afraid. We got four-wheel drive. We got good vehicles that can make it. So it, it's nice to, uh, to be in such a place where uh, we have no fear of the elements. And we shouldn't have fear as believers of really anything. Amen. We, we fear the Lord because we know that he is good, he is righteous, he is just, that he loves us, and we also know what he is capable of, so we therefore come to him in reverence, and we love and worship him. And also, I want to say to you, Merry Christmas, church. And you know, every Sunday, every time we come together in, in public assembly, uh, we are celebrating, essentially, Christmas the mass of Christ. We are coming together to honor and glorify the Lord, our King, and we love Him. We follow His directives. We are not swayed by uh, the, the latest talking points in our, in our society. Um, we don't follow a news cycle. My, my preaching, my sermons are not based off of the latest news cycle, but rather on the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Um, we are a Bible-believing church. We like to go through books of the Bible and allow God to control the board and allow God to give us uh, the insights and things that we need to focus on and we need to learn about. And so, therefore, we are in 2 Corinthians. We are walking through the book of 2 Corinthians. We are in chapter 6. And over the last couple chapters, by way of review, we've been talking a lot about relationships. Specifically, relationship as it pertains to our church fellowship. And part of what Paul has gotten into was based off of the fact that there were false apostles in the church at Corinth who were starting to try to discredit Paul's involvement in the Corinthian church. Uh, they were slandering him. They were, uh, they were trying to discredit him in his ministry and ultimately trying to sway the church away from him and into alternative teachings that were not of God. And so Paul, in order to address this problem, and it was a problem, in order to address this problem, he began by talking about the importance of being able to look around the room as we come together in fellowship and the ability to be able to rejoice and boast in each other's faith. And in order to boast in each other's faith, we need to first and foremost know do we actually have faith? Are, are we actually known by God? Because it's one thing to know God or to know facts about God or to know things about God, and it's an entirely different thing to be known by God. You know, as God says, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all these righteous things? And Christ will look at some and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so it is important that within a church context that we are seeking to build relationships with one another as we come here together so that indeed we can boast about one another's faith. So it is important as you come into church fellowship to understand that the, the part of our fellowship is that we do open up ourselves to cross-examination. You know, that is part of church fellowship. Because ultimately, we are sharpening one another, we are sanctifying agents for one another, we edify, we build each other up, and so it's very important to know that are we all on the same page in that regard? Because the Bible clearly calls for the church to do that one with another. So he went on from that concept to then talking about also what, what kind of ministry is worthy of um, being commended. And so we walked through a series of the, the lists and the categories that Paul presented uh, as things that we should consider when evaluating church ministry, because it goes both ways, right? So you have church fellowship. We are all part of the body of Christ. And then you also have ministry or ministry workers who are doing the work of the Lord. And in one way or another, we are all doing the work of the Lord, but particularly when it comes to those who are in positions of leadership, those who are uh, discipling and leading other people or in a uh, position of authority. And so we want to also cross-examine ourselves and our work. And we want to be able to uh, be commended and to commend one another in our work. 
And so as a church, as a ministry, are we truly doing the work of the Lord according to Scripture? You know, are we, are we loving uh, God? Are we loving people well? And so both of those things need to come into evaluation as we come together. And the final part of this that Paul is going to bring up in addressing these false apostles who are coming in is that he's going to point out the fact that it's so important we are very careful about the company that we choose to keep. And so before we get into this text and before we look at this, I think it's important that uh, we do guard our relationships very closely. The Bible consistently speaks of the importance of the company that we choose to keep. This is not just uh, an opinion. This is not my opinion. This is not even Paul's opinion, but this is a solid biblical doctrine found in the very foundations and the fundamentals of Old Testament Scripture, of New Testament Scripture. This is something you can take to the bank when it comes to your theology. For example, when you go back to the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Paul said in his first letter, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Then he follows that up by saying, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So the church at Corinth, even during his first letter, struggled with surrounding themselves with bad influences. And so he calls on the church at Corinth to be aware of the fact that bad company ruins good morals. This is a biblical principle. And as we look back at Galatians, for example, another letter that Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, in Galatians 5, 7 through 9, he says, you, you were running well. You were living your faith out well. You were doing good. And then he asks, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so in other words, Church of Galatia, you, you guys were united in the faith. You were growing in the faith, growing in wisdom and knowledge and good deeds. But then all of a sudden something happened. What happened? Well, you allowed people or someone to come in who poisoned the water hole, who, who made it toxic in their unbelief their false believing, their sinful lifestyles. And you allowed that to sway your congregation away from righteous living. Again, bad company ruins good morals. And this just wasn't Paul's ministry philosophy, but again, this was a principle rooted in fundamental wisdom according to Scripture. When you go back to Proverbs, a book about wisdom, Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the company of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 22.24-25 also says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. And I find we rub off on one another in the way that we live our lives. If, if you want to be wise, find wise people to spend time with. If, if you want to be more mild-mannered, then hang out with more mild-mannered people. But when two brawlers and angry people who, uh, who are very quick to anger and quick to, quick to temper spend time together, you feed off each other. And I think we do this with dogs, too. We, we, we impress uh, anger upon our creatures, even. I've noticed this with, uh, with my dog Gizmo, and I've confessed this from the pulpit, that there are times where my anger goes from like zero to ten over nothing. You know, perhaps it's because I hold too much in, and then just something little happens, and just the tinderbox is set off, and I'm like, I'm raging. Well, if I'm doing that around the house, I've noticed my dog, my little Yorkshire Terrier, turns into this mad beast where if he gets mad, he's just like, you, you can't calm him down. And unfortunately, i got to say that maybe that comes from me. He, I'm a bad influence on my dog. But we do that. We, we feed off of each other. And we, we need to be around other people 
who we would like to aspire to be like. And the best kind of people to be around in that regard are those who aspire to be like Christ. Because if you're with people, a body of believers who are committed to be like Christ, committed to the confession of sin, committed to working together in ways to build one another up, to repent from our sins, to do righteous deeds, if we're in a body of believers, which I believe we are, then we can't help but to grow. We're going to rub off on each other. Psalm 1-1 also said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I would encourage you to have a healthy level of attention to um, world events. You know, to paying attention to what's happening around the world. But I encourage you not to get so sucked in deep that you start to get sucked into that political mindset where, you know, it's all about owning the libs or whatever it might be. Because in that, that mindset is not the Christian gospel mindset. You know, even if there are values that we share with political pundits and people like that, news anchors, if we share those, some of the same values Still, our goal as Christians is to go make disciples of the nations, is to love people and ultimately to uh, even love our enemies. And so if you get too sucked into that stuff, you're going to start acting like the people in that arena. But we want to act like people in the Christian arena. I would rather be like the Christian in the first century who is in the arena of the Colosseum about ready to be fed to the lions than to be in the arena of constant bickering and fighting back and forth with the world over who knows what. Because as Christians, we are called to be in the arena of Christ, to take up our cross, to die daily, to pray for our enemies, to love those who persecute us. And so, therefore, it is a fundamental truth that we as believers uh, are to surround ourselves with other believers who are pursuing Christ. Okay, so we're going to get into 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Let's say a word of prayer, and we'll dig right in. Father, how good it is to know you. Thank you, Lord, for being the love of our life. Thank you for showing us a better way. God, we long to, to grow in you. We long to do better than we did yesterday. Father, we are sinners saved by your grace. We are failures. We fall short. We need help. And so, Father, I thank you for the gift of the church that helps to sanctify and edify us as we meet together, as we share our lives together, as we do life together. God, I just pray that you will help us in, in regard to selecting our friends, choosing our friends, choosing those who are in our lives, God, that you would help us to be wise. You would help us to surround ourselves with those who build us up in the faith, not tear us down. Those who lead us to righteousness, not those who lead us to sin. Father, we just want to please you because we love you. We fear you. We want to live in reverence of you. So God, I just pray, if there's anything hindering our minds, our bodies, our souls from desiring you above all else, Father, may this morning, may those things just come toppling down. Draw us to you. Bring us close. May you do this by the wisdom of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Infiltrate every heart and mind here this morning and be the Lord of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 6, verse 14, Paul just comes right out and gives the instruction. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now I want you to notice that unlike other areas in his letters, he does not say, I, not the Lord, say this, but rather through the Holy Spirit, God is speaking through Paul and giving us this instruction. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And again, this is built upon the foundation of fundamental rooted truth, which is that bad company corrupts good character. Now, if, if you're unfamiliar with this term yoked, 
which uh, if you're like me and you grew up in the church, then you heard probably at least a dozen sermons that explain this concept of being yoked. But this word here, unequally yoked, it's all one word, word in the Greek. It means to be mismatched. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. And yoke, a yoke was a wooden cross piece that was fastened over the neck of two animals, which is attached to then a pulling cart or a plow. And so the term yoked re, uh, refers to a binding relationship, being in concert or being bound together with someone or something else. Throughout the Bible, marriage is often the example of the kind of relationship that we think of when we think of being yoked to someone because it's a binding relationship. In fact, when you go back to 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul uses the same word in direct reference to marriage. He says, a wife is bound, same word, to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So marriage is the best example we have of this idea of being yoked together. And I hope in your mind's eye, as you think about your spouse, if you're married here this morning, then you think of your marriage in terms of we, are, we have the yoke of Christ over the top of us, and we are moving in his direction. We are plowing in his direction together. We're not in ministry separately. We're in ministry together. If I'm doing this over here, and you're doing this over here, we are not going to be effective in our ministry or in our lives. It's so important that in our marriages, we are together in our mission and in our work. And if you are not, I would encourage you to hold an emergency family meeting, just you and your spouse. You come together, you pray to the Lord, you sit down with a pen and pad, and you come up with what is our mission as a married couple. What, what are we going to do together to serve the Lord together and to be a positive influence in this world? And you sit there, you brainstorm, you pray until the Lord gives you a mission statement for your marriage. Because it's true, you are yoked together. Outside of marriage, there are other relationships which... Can all, this can also refer to as well. Uh, we, of course, have many different types of committed relationships that we might be in, whether friendships or family or working partnerships or things like that. I think the idea is that if it's not easy to disengage from a relationship, then chances are you are in a relationship that is yoked. So just think about your friendships. Think, think about your relationships. Can you think of people in your life where if you were to say, hey, Lord has taken me in a different direction, or hey, I'm moving over here, and uh, our relationship isn't going to work out, if, if you ever have that conversation. If you can think of people where that would be a difficult conversation, then chances are you, you're probably yoked in one regard or another. Maybe at a different degree than marriage, obviously, but you're still yoked to where it affects your life and the choices you make and the things that you do. If you can't make choices in your life without first consulting with someone, chances are you are yoked in that relationship. And so what Paul is saying is do not have such a relationship with unbelievers. The instruction is very specific. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So in other words, those who are indifferent about Jesus, those who hate Jesus, those who are proactively acting against Jesus and the church, we are not to be in a yoked relationship with such a person. And so now we see the importance of Paul's earlier instruction about being able to know who is saved or not. Because if you don't know if somebody is saved, or not, how can you know whether you can proceed into a yoked relationship with someone? That's why it's crucial. And again, people might say, well, judge not lest ye be judged. Well, the Bible clearly calls us in the context of our Christian life, if somebody is professing to be a Christian, 
then again, we are automatically opening up ourselves to cross-examination. And so if, if you are trying to get to know somebody on a spiritual faith level, and they're very standoffish, they don't want you to know anything about their life, if they, if they don't want you to be a part of their life, then how are you supposed to discover or know if they are a true believer? And therefore, if you can really come into a yoked relationship with them. I mean, because we know all you have to do is live in this world for a little while, and you recognize the fact that there are people out there who are charlatans and swindlers and fakes and phonies, and they will come up claiming to be one thing, and internally they are something entirely different. Yes, this happens even in the church. You have people who infiltrate pretending to be Christians, pretending to live the life, but really they have ulterior motives, nefarious intent. They're looking to do things for selfish reasons. So it is important that we as a church are careful about who we become bonded with in a yoked relationship. But on the other end of this, I think there's some nuance that we need to look into, and Paul will come into that a little bit later. But some people take this idea of being unequally yoked to unbelievers to an extreme, and they reject any level of relationship with any unbeliever. But this is obviously not the intention of this instruction. This is primarily talking about in our closest relationships, and especially in our church fellowship relationships. Because we're not supposed to just start these different communes, uh, you know, these little compounds. As, as Clayton Community Church, you know, I'm, I'm not calling on you guys to come move into the cul-de-sac we live in, and let's, let's make this Christian compound and, and, uh, and just totally escape from the entire world, just live our own lives over here and just let the world rot, that's not what the gospel tells us to do. The gospel tells us to be out in the world, to be loving the world as Christ did. I mean, Christ traveled everywhere in the world in many different contexts, and he was out there spreading the message of the kingdom of heaven and the message of the gospel. He was with prostitutes. He was with sinners and tax collectors, and he was out there not to hang out and to participate in prostitution, not to go hang out and participate in tax collecting or any other sin. He was among sinners so that he could call on them to believe in him, to repent from sin, and receive eternal life. That was his intention. He wasn't just there to, to hang out and see, oh, see what you're up to. That's kind of fun. No, he was like calling on them to believe. Consider, if you will, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, where Paul writes, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? Again, there's that cross-examination. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So obviously this instruction uh, cannot mean the absolute shunning of all unbelievers. But this means to hold people accountable who claim to be Christian to being a true follower of Christ. Because what does it mean when you say, I follow Jesus, or I am a Christian? Christian is, is the label given to those who claim to follow Christ. If you follow Christ, then you are one who is anxious to know his word, to understand his instruction, which is found in Scripture, and if, as soon as you start to discover what God expects of his people, what he is calling on us to do, then a true believer will want to do everything that they possibly can to pursue such living. And so for those who claim to be believers but yet are practicing sin, again, let me make the distinction, we all slip up, we all fail, we all fall, we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. That, that, is our, that is who we are. So we're going to make mistakes. 
But those who persistently make the same mistakes without repentance are living in sin and rebellion against God. You are going to make a mistake. When you make the mistake, is your conscience bothering you? Are, are, are you repulsed by the thing that you just did or the way that you just acted? God is working on me in those moments of anger where I just <laughs> go crazy, and then all of a sudden I just feel instant guilt. Sometimes I repent and recover immediately. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. But the fact is I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I have sinned. And I'm sorry for the fact that I have sinned. And because I'm sorry of it, I take the appropriate steps to do my best to repent and turn away from such behavior. But the unbeliever will go on continuing practicing that thing which they know they ought not do. In fact, in many cases, it will progress and they will eventually start to try and justify that action as a good thing. We see this in society here today. But, so there's nuance that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but we are to be out in the world preaching the gospel to unbelievers. Next part, Paul moves into discussing um, antithetical relationships. And so he continues, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So here he presents us with examples of relationships that should not be in close fellowship or partnership. In fact, as we walk through here, we see that he uses these words, partnership, fellowship, accord, portion, and agreement. He begins by asking a rhetorical question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The Greek word is matecho, which describes a partaking or communion relationship. So you go back to what, what Paul said, about sitting down to eat a meal with a person who claims to be a believer but is truly living like hell. And their actions don't demonstrate them being a believer. The Bible says such a person, don't even eat with such a person. In other words, don't have communion. Don't share a meal. And certainly don't break bread in sense of a Christian communion. Membership is also this idea uh, that is synonymous with matecho. And so what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None, it does not. Next, what fellowship has light with darkness? The word fellowship here is koinonia, and this describes a dedicated and personal relationship. And every Thursday, which actually this last Thursday was the last time we met for this season, we have what's called koinonia group. And it's based off of this principle or this word, which talks about this fellowship that we have with one another. It's a dedicated and a personal, uh, intimate, relationship-building type relationship that we have together. Uh, traditionally, koinonia occurs face-to-face -face or in the same room. Obviously, with the advancement of technology, we can do uh, uh, Skype and FaceTime and, and all that kind of stuff. But there is something missing when you're speaking to somebody through a computer or even through your phone or whatever medium that you choose, there's something different about being in the same space with somebody else. And you felt it, right? How many of you have to do like Skype meetings all the time now since COVID? Many of you probably do. There's something different about doing a Skype meeting versus actually being in the same room. And Paul talks about this as it's a spiritual benefit. He, he wished to impart a spiritual blessing to the people of Rome by coming and being face-to-face -face with them. That is the, the bond of our common faith together. And our common faith is best shared when we are in fellowship or koinonia together in the same space, praying for one another, building one another up, practicing our spiritual disciplines together. And Paul uses this idea of light and darkness. What kind of fellowship does light and darkness have? Can light and dark be in the same space at the same time? Some of you scientists will be like, 
Well, what about shadows? Because doesn't light cause a shadow? Yes, but once you come around that object that's creating the shadow, the darkness has to flee, right? And even when you look at the science of a, of a shadow, if you have a light source here, if you have an object here and the shadow, which direction does the shadow go? Does it go towards the light or away from the light? It flees away from the light. And so just as light and dark cannot occupy the same space at the same time, so neither should a believer and an unbeliever occupy the same space because we are two different things with two different agendas. And he goes on to say, what accord has Christ with Belial? And this word here describes a harmonious relationship. And this has to do a lot with um, when we think of harmony, we think of music. You know, I, I love our worship team who, who plays very well in, in harmony. They're very in sync. They're, they're in the same tempo. The, the singing is, for the most part, is in, in, in harmony. But no group is perfect, right? I mean, if, if, if we were perfect singers, we would be robots, and that's not human at all. We, we couldn't connect with that. So the errors, even in music, the errors in beauty, I'm going off on a rabbit trail here, uh, all those things demonstrate our humanity and, and are all part of what makes it beautiful when we come together and we are working towards a common goal of being in harmony with one another. But it takes work. It takes time. I've been a worship leader in, in my life as well, and it takes time to develop people to the point where we're on the same page. I'll never forget in high school when I was in jazz choir, we, we were trying to work together to, to sing these songs and get ready for the big CBC concert where if, if you did well at the CBC concert, uh, then you could be invited to the honors concert. And I remember just months, maybe even one month before um, the competition, we were singing this song, and maybe you could help me out. You remember the moment? My wife was singing on the jazz choir with me. Um, do you remember the song where we just clicked and Mr. McMullen just looked, his face looked like heaven? The so this song was called Sing Me to Heaven. And I'm not going to sing it for you here now, but I just remember we, we've been working so hard as a group and we were singing this song and then eventually just everybody was just locked in. Eric remembers this too. Eric, our drummer, was on the jazz choir too. And we were just locked in and our director... You could see his face. Heaven was on his face. And then when we were done singing, we, we were just kind of looking around at each other. Something awesome had happened. We were in perfect harmony together. And what a moment. And by the way, we did end up getting invited to the honors concert, um, which is what happens when you are in harmony or in accord with one another. You, you become successful. You, you achieve your goals together. And so Paul asks rhetorically, what accord has Christ with Belial? And who is Belial? Well, Belial is an Old Testament name given to a worthless troublemaker that became ultimately the nickname of Satan or the devil in the New Testament. So New Testament believers use this nickname to assign that to the devil. So in other words, what accord has Christ with the devil. Well, you think about how light and dark cannot occupy the same space. Well, you see an example in Scripture where Satan, who is the liar, and Jesus, who is the truth teller, come together for a moment where Christ is tempted by the liar. If you remember, uh, Satan kept tempting him. If, you know, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you turn this rock into piece of bread because you're hungry you've been fasting right so he was tempting him but of course christ came back with the truth quoting scripture and so christ and satan don't have the same mission satan's mission is to disrupt is to destroy is to deceive is to kill christ's mission is to tell the truth, is to love, 
is to heal, is to bring peace, and to bring salvation. They are not on the same mission. They're going two separate ways. And so how can they possibly be in one accord? They're not. It's just like there's certain chords that you play. If you were to play two totally different opposite chords at the same time in music, it's this horrible clashing sound. It's not appealing, not attractive. And this is what happens when you have a believer who's going one way and an unbeliever going the other way come together. It clashes. It just doesn't work. It's not productive. It's not good. It's worthless. And so what accord has Christ with Belial? None. The fourth rhetorical question, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The Greek word here is meris, and this describes a relationship where there are common interests. And when you think about the fundamental motives of believers and unbelievers, just like Christ and Satan, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a son of God, you are a son of Christ. If you follow the world and your flesh and the devil, then you are a child of the devil. If you remember John, he called those who continually practice sin sons of the devil. And those who continually practice righteousness, though even not perfectly, sons of God. And so you're either a son of God or you're a son of the devil. There's no in-between. Either you're fully following Christ, or even if you feel like you're halfway following Christ, if you're still stuck in your sin, if you're still living for your sin, then you are a child of the devil. And so we don't share the same portion. So as we cross each other, as we cross each other's path, it's not like we're going in the same direction to the same location. Rather, we're on a street and we're just passing each other. And if you turn around to follow or to go alongside or, or with such a person, then you're going in the wrong direction. And Christ wants us to always be moving heavenward. He wants us to be calling on them to turn around and come our way. But we don't compromise. We know the trip. We know the plan. We have the itinerary. And we need to be unmovable, unstoppable, going in the right direction. So therefore, we don't share a portion with unbelievers. Finally, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And, and agreement here describes a contractual relationship or covenant. And Paul will elaborate on this point here in the next section. So as we look forward, he continues, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God says of every true believer that you are the temple of the living God. And in order to express this, Paul quotes multiple places from the Old Testament. We'll look at a few of them. Leviticus 27.12 says, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And of course, we know on a spiritual level, God has freed us all from Egypt. He has freed us all from a land of sin and slavery. And he has caused us all to go through the Red Sea and come out the other side, cleaned, baptized, born again, and free from the slavery and bondage of sin so that all who continue in him will see the promised land one day. And this, of course, was a, a prophecy for the New Testament that we would be called sons and daughters of God. Exodus 29, 45 through 46, likewise says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Isaiah 52, 11 says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And then Hosea 1, 10 
The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. This, of course, refers to the fact that God's chosen people, Israel, that he was creating a, a people, that he was building a relationship with the people from where his perfect law would come, from where the perfect uh, fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ, would come, who would die on the cross so that all might be saved. And so through Jesus Christ, we are grafted in to the body of Christ. We have an opportunity to be a part of the program. And so in that way, we are living temples. We are temples of the living God. The new covenant of Christ was promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled through Christ in the church. The Holy Spirit is the deposit that was given to us as a guarantee of our salvation. That is Christ in us. Christ is dwelling in us. He is teaching us today according to his word. He is reminding us of what he has taught us. He is empowering us to do the work of ministry today. Christ in us. The work of the church is Christ in us. As Paul said in his first letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So in our mind's eye, God wants us to view our, our body, our spirit, our soul, all that encompasses who we are as vessels for Christ in us. That we are temples. That we are where Christ dwells. And that through us, God is doing a work in the world. So if God does not have fellowship with unbelievers and God indwells every believer, believers should therefore not have the same fellowship with unbelievers. On to chapter 7 here, the last part. And here Paul kind of drives this home. He, he shares what the implications and then ultimately what the application should be to this instruction. So chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, again, since we have been promised salvation and we are temples of the living God, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So he's calling on us to be cleansed, to cleanse ourselves, to purify ourselves, to purge ourselves, our lives, our livelihood, our habits, our relationships, to purge ourselves from all the things which contribute to further defiling us. Everything. Habits, behaviors, sins, friendships. In particular, friendships is what he's referring to here in this context. So by following Christ, by doing what he says, by being obedient to his word, yes, even to this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is all part of your purification process. And if you get hung up on this point, if you cannot be obedient to this point, then you cannot be further sanctified in your relationship with Christ. You will be stunted, you will be stalled, and you will flatline as a Christian. You will not thrive, you will not grow, but rather you will remain. And our whole goal as believers is to be sanctified. And being sanctified means that we are growing closer and closer to Christ, becoming more and more like Christ. We all should long to be sanctified. And part of sanctification is we have to be obedient to his word. If we are, if we are in rebellion to his word, if we refuse to do the things which he is calling on us to do, then we will not be sanctified. And the ultimate goal of every believer is holiness. Christ is calling us to be holy. And to be holy ultimately means to be set apart, to be purified, to be made special, to be made new. 
God has dedicated us for this purpose. We are to be a people who live lives distinguishable from the world. And this doesn't mean that we can't, like, enjoy the, the different styles, you know, of, like, for example, fashion. If there's a modest fashion which the world enjoys and it, it doesn't conflict with our idea of modesty, it's okay. You can wear that fashion. If you enjoy an activity that the world enjoys that doesn't directly cause you to sin, then you can enjoy that activity. Absolutely. But in terms of our life, our attitude, our ideology, the things that we preach, the things that we teach, the things that we reinforce, uh, our households, we must be holy when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to living, when it comes to the company that we keep. God is calling us to be holy. He's pulling us out from the world and calling us to be holy so that we can go back into the world and that we can shine his light so that the darkness will flee. And the motivation ultimately comes down to the fear of the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, if you have no reverence for God, then everything that I'm saying here this morning will probably just fall to the wayside. You won't care. How do we get people to care? Well, first and foremost, we don't get people to care. It's God who reaches in and motivates. But for the person with a calloused heart, a person who does not really care what God thinks, maybe a person who has animosity towards God because of a series of unfortunate events in life, it's going to be really hard for you to, to have a desire to even do what God says. And so my prayer for you this morning is if you are struggling to be obedient to God, my prayer is that God will soften your heart. He will come in, that he will be the thing that motivates you to care, to care what he thinks, to care what he wants. Because if you care, boy, he's going to take that and he's going to take you and he's going to build you up into a better life than you could possibly imagine and a better life in terms of what truly matters. True love. Peace. Are you sick and tired of the chaos that's in your heart? Open up your heart to the peace of God, because if you do, if you pursue him, if you are, if you are in true pursuit of him, you will have a peace that passes understanding. If you have a thankful heart to God, if you can look at everything you have and truly be content and know that everything good in your life is a gift from God, and you are thankful for those things, and you're not sitting here whining and complaining about the things that, that you find unfortunate, but if you truly have a heart of thanksgiving, God will give you a heart of peace about the things that you find unfortunate. True peace, my friends, even in the midst of chaos. And this world is quickly going over that cliff of chaos. Chaos is all around us. But you know what? As Christians, we can be holy and set apart as the reasonable, reasonable people in the room who have true peace, who have true clarity, who have true answers for the problems that face us. And unfortunately, as Christians, we tend to get swept up into the chaos. Again, we surround ourselves with chaotic people. But as believers, we must come together in pursuit of peace. His peace. I want to close on this point because all these things are good and well. All these things are true. Uh, the instruction is very plain, is very clear. But I also want to offer you an application. What are the practical considerations concerning our relationships? What does this look like applied to the real world? Well, first and foremost, let's start at the top. Let's start at marriage the most yoked relationship that you could possibly have. So if, if you're married to an unbeliever, you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, does that mean you need to divorce or separate from your spouse? Well, thankfully for, for all of us, this question is answered in Scripture directly. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, Paul says, To the rest I say, and I want you to notice this, he says, I not the Lord. So again, if you remember from when we went through the first letter, this is, this is Paul's pastoral wisdom and counsel. It's good. It's not 
as binding as, let's say, the, the Ten Commandments would be, for example. But this is good, good advice, better pastoral advice than I could give. This is Paul's good advice that made it into the Scripture. He says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And if you wrestle with that statement there, what's that say, what that is saying is that the natural cause of events, if you are a believer in a bound relationship and you are truly following the Lord, then ultimately you will sway your spouse. Either that, or as he continues on saying, they will leave you because they're sick and tired of your Christian crap. Because, if, for example, uh, anybody ever heard of Lee Strobel? He wrote for the Washington Post back, back in the 70s. You probably read some of his books. Um, anyway, he, he was a, a, a radical atheist. He, he really hated Christians, which is why he was shocked and really angry that his wife one day went and got born again. And she comes home. And she's just this new person. She wants to live the Lord. She wants to purge her life and, and become holy, purge her life of, of alcohol, purge her life of, of drugs, of, of slander, of gossip. And she starts living for Christ, going to church on Sunday. And this is driving him mad. He's like, my number one drinking buddy is now gone dry. And, 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 and she's no fun anymore. All she wants to do is just go to church and go do all these like, uh, good deeds and things like that, and, and I've lost my fun wife. And so Lee Strobel, before choosing to divorce her, decided, well, I'm a journalist, and so I'm going to go out, talk to church leaders and things like that, and I'm going to disprove Christ and disprove the Bible as a journalist, and I'm going to come back to my wife and show her how stupid a decision this is, and she needs to change her mind and go back to the old wife that I liked hanging out with. But what's awesome about that is in his pursuit, you know, th those who seek will find, right? Oh, he, he was seeking, and he found. Christ found him in his pursuit, and he himself became born again. He dropped to his knees, gave his life to the Lord, and you can find these in The Case for Christ, Case for Faith. There's even a movie about it. Really awesome story. But the whole point is his wife and her belief and her, her willingness to stay with her husband ultimately caused him to come to belief himself. And more often than not, that will happen. But sometimes people will leave. Again, because they're just sick and tired of you being a Christian. They don't want to do that. But the, the Bible is very clear. If you are yoked in marriage, you are a believer, but your spouse is not, do not leave them. Do your best to be the best spouse that you can possibly be. Be patient, loving, but ultimately pursue Christ. Don't let your marriage get in the way of pursuing Christ. He is our first love. He is the priority. And if your spouse is willing to, to come along with, the hope is that they would ultimately become born again. But if they leave, let them go. And so I would apply that same principle to friendships as well because I've talked to many people who become born again, but then they have their sinning buddies or they have their unbelieving buddies that they've, they've known since ch childhood. They have a deep connection to and a deep loyalty to. And they're like, no way, I'm not, I, 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 that's my best friend. That is my best friend. And I, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to abandon my best friend. That's my hunting buddy. That's the one I get together with on Friday nights and we go out drinking I, I can't stop that friendship. I'm a loyalty guy, right? Well, I'd say in the same way as marriage, if you have such a yoked relationship, continue to be their friend. However, adjust your life to live for Christ. So, for example, if you typically went out, like on a Friday, you got hammered with that person. If you become a believer, stop going out on Friday. Make it, make it plain to them that I now follow Christ. And the scripture says that I'm not to be brought to drunkenness. And so therefore, man, I'd be, I'd be happy to, let's just go to a restaurant and get some food. How about that on a Friday? And as you start making those adjustments, they'll either hate you for it 
and uh, go find a new friend. And guess what? You're going to find out the quality of your friendship in that, in that process. And a lot of times you'll find out that they only liked you because you were doing that sin with them, because you were participating in that sin. And once you leave that sin, they want nothing to do with you. Five mulligans. I'll wrap it up here soon. So in your friendships, take that same approach. Lift Christ. You don't need to sever it violently, but allow natural processes to take care of itself. God, God will work that out. And if they do come to believe and be born again along with you, what a joy that would be because you would have the same story. That we were both living in sin together. God touched my life. I was born again, and, and that influenced my friend. We both became born-again believers, and now we're lifelong ministry workers together. How awesome is that? But if they go, let them go. Uh, next, the relationship of work and leisure. Because obviously some of you have to work closely with people in the world who don't share the same faith or ideas as you. Well, when you are in that kind of a situation, regardless of whether you're a boss, a coworker, customer, you will have unbelieving acquaintances in your life. But in those relationships, I would encourage you to always keep a barrier there that prevents an intimate, deep, close, yoked relationship. That you would keep it professional. You know, keep your work your work. It doesn't mean that you can't be friendly. It doesn't mean that, you know, if they're like, hey, you want to grab a bite to eat after work? Sure, let's go grab a bite to eat. But that you always have in your mind the idea that in those moments, I'm looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Because we as believers need to be on the offensive. We can't constantly be on the, on the defensive when they're calling on us to come and participate in sin with them. But rather, we should be the ones inviting them to righteousness, inviting them to Christ. That should always be on our mind, and that should be our posture. Same with neighbors. You're not always going to have believing neighbors, or we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, we used to do a thing in the, in the cul-de-sac years ago where every summer we would host a, a barbecue out in the cul-de-sac. So everybody from the community, believe it or not, would come. We would barbecue. We'd share, we'd share this meal together, and uh, we'd talk about the cul-de-sac. <laughs> But yet, we were not inviting them into the intimate areas of our life. We were not inviting them into a deep friendship and fellowship, but rather this common bond of being neighbors and looking out for one another. Because the Bible calls us to do this, to be, to be friendly in that regard. We should always be friendly. We should always be kind and charitable. But there should be a barrier with unbelievers where we do not allow them to encroach upon the intimate areas of our life. That is reserved for believers alone. And the final part, which I want to close on, how many, how many times have I said that? In closing, finally, here's the last section. That, that's a pastor trick to try and keep you on the line. Oh, good, he's almost done. I can pay attention. Uh, but I mean it. This is the last part. Because if our closest friends should be believers, um, not all believers will become our closest friends. I think that's an important point to make. Because sometimes we get the wrong idea coming into a Christian fellowship that, oh, all these people are going to become my best friends. Or you, you run into people like that who, who want to pursue you as a friend and, and they have this expectation that, well, you're a Christian, aren't you? You need to invite me over to your house. You need to... Uh, Invite me along to participate in this and participate in that, into, into everything. But that's not ultimately what the Bible's talking about in our Christian fellowship. Um, we are called to be co-workers in Christ. That's number one. Co-workers in Christ. So we should be on mission together. We, when we get together, our deepest times of fellowship should be when we're talking about kingdom things, when we're practicing spiritual disciplines together. That's what Christians do. And in my life, I've found that the people who are closest in my life, those who are the true deep friends, are those who I'm doing ministry work with together. 
And I think that's how ultimately it should be. Not everybody's going to be your best friend, but we should always be friendly to the body of believers. We should always have open invitations to, to some degree. But let's look at Christ. I want to look at Christ. He is the model. Uh, let's consider the Jesus model when it comes to relationships. First of all, Jesus was charitable to unbelievers, but unbelievers were not his friends or best friends. So he always had a kind approach to unbelievers, and ultimately he was calling them to believe. Second, consider Nicodemus. He met with Nicodemus, a religious leader who did not have proper understanding, and Christ was willing to meet with him in secret to have a conversation, to tell him the truth of the gospel, which is that, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Again, he was willing to come and meet with him one-on-one, -on -one, have a discussion. But his end goal was to tell him, you must be born again, was to correct his misperception. Number three, Christ, the Christ model, he preached to a large group of followers, and on occasion, he even fed them. And on occasion, he sometimes even uh, intentionally scattered them by saying harsh and difficult things for them to accept. If you remember John chapter 6, all the people were following him because he was multiplying bread and, and fishes, and they wanted to elevate him as king, as their bread boy. And he saw right into their heart and saw their intentions. And so he preached a very difficult but a very true thing. He said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whoa, that's hard to accept. And they all left him except the 12. So there were times where, where Jesus even didn't want all those people to be following him because their beliefs were disingenuous. And then it, down to the 12, the next thing is he had a close, intimate relationship with his 12, the ones who stuck around. They traveled with him everywhere. They helped him carry out his ministry work. And then even the next layer, if you peel that down, he had a closer relationship among the 12 with Peter, James, and John. Jesus, when he went up to the mountain so that he could be transfigured into a, a heavenly body and to give them a glimpse of heaven, he didn't invite all of his disciples. He certainly didn't invite the entire crowd that was following him. He didn't invite Nicodemus. He didn't invite unbelievers, but he invited only three people, Peter, James, and John, became a witness to the transfiguration of Christ. And so as a church, I don't want to standardize any specific method of, of how you should carry out choosing who your friends are, choosing who your closest friends are. Ultimately, that's between you and the Lord. I would encourage you to rely on the Holy Spirit of God to give you the wisdom to know who should be my inner cabinet of three, who should be my John, Peter, and James, and, and who should be the disciples, those who I'm investing my life in, those who I'm, I'm calling to follow me on this mission as I'm working out God's will for my life. Who are the 12? But then, then also to have the wisdom to discern, are, are there people in your life who are not really genuine or they're disingenuous about, about doing the same work together? Maybe sometimes you need to give them a harsh word. Or like a Paul and Barnabas, maybe sometimes you just need to part ways, and that's okay. Because both Paul and Barnab Barnabas went on to do the work of the Lord in separate areas. And sometimes I think that's even necessary, because sometimes we just want to build up a big old, you know, mecca of a church in our area. When really, what's God calling us to do? To go. Go out into the world. So I think sometimes God allows us to have fractured relationships, even within the church, so that we're motivated to go and do what he said. Otherwise, we'd love to just come here and build a compound, you know, build it like the, the Tower of Babel and just stay in one place for all time. Sometimes God shakes things up, and that's okay. And so I would encourage you to trust in the wisdom of the Lord when it comes to deciding who amongst the body of believers you should have what level of relationship with. Um, but ultimately, I want to encourage you to be obedient to God's word, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Take that seriously if you take Christ seriously. Let's pray.
Father, how good it is to be in fellowship with you. That's the most important fellowship we care about. We thank you for making that fellowship possible through your son, Jesus. And I pray as we go from this place, Lord, you will give us the wisdom to know who in our lives do we need to separate from, who in our lives do we need to to encourage to believe in you, or uh, who in our lives do we need to have at a proper level of relationship with us. God, we just, we need your wisdom. There's so many variables to think about. And so I pray that you'll give us the Holy Spirit instincts to know which relationships to keep, which, which relationships to keep at bay, and which relationships to sever altogether. Father, we're going to trust in you because you are God and we are not. We love you. We want to follow you. We want to be obedient and reverent to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.